there was a uh, a man who was uh, celebrating his hundredth birthday, and a reporter said to him, "I am curious. How did you manage to live so long? What's your secret?" The old man answered, Well, son, I got married when I was 21. And the wife and I decided back then that if we had arguments, the loser would take a long walk to get over their anger. I guess you could say that God has blessed me with 79 years of fresh air. <clears throat> yeah, only the men said that, right? <laughs> In light of all the, the judgment and the wrath we have covered thus far, we are due for a breath of fresh air. And that's what we are going to get this morning. If you recall from a couple of the previous messages, Babylon was destroyed. Remember that? Babylon was destroyed. Jesus returned as a conqueror. The Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Remember that? And we left off with a lot of dead people and a lot of fat birds. The tribulation period is over. Jesus has returned. And now it's time to breathe. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're getting towards the end. Revelation chapter 20, and we will begin with verse 1, and it should be up behind me uh, on the wall. Can you read that all right? Okay, okay. <clears throat> The Apostle John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, 
he must be released for a short time. John begins with the words, Then I saw. Then I saw. Which indicates there is a sequence. In sequence, we are picking up where we left off in chapter 19. Where we saw the end of the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus. So it makes sense that what we read in chapter 20 naturally flows and follows. Flows and follows the return of Christ. We're told that John sees an angel. A single unnamed angel coming down out of heaven and he takes custody of Satan. Binds him in chains and confines him in the abyss. If you remember the abyss or the bottomless pit, depending on your Bible translation, is a prison for demons. That's what it is. It's a prison for demons. It's a place where demons are held until their final judgment in the lake of fire. The Antichrist and the false prophet are the first two occupants. The first two in the lake of fire. But here, here we are told, Satan is thrown into the abyss. Not the lake of fire. He's thrown into the abyss, suggesting that God is not done with him yet. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. But more importantly, more importantly, during this thousand-year period, Jesus sets up His promised earthly kingdom called the Millennial Kingdom. Now, we need to talk about that for a moment. Because Bible scholars are all over the place with some mind-numbing views about the Millennial Kingdom. I tried to study them. But for my own sanity, I had to stop. But here is a sampling of the views that are out there. Some say there is no such a thing as a millennial kingdom. Proposing it's just symbolic, not to be taken literally. Others tell us, well, it's not really a thousand years. Instead, it only represents a long period of time. 
There are those who suggest the millennial kingdom pictures the spiritual reign of Christ in his church, not his physical and personal reign upon the earth in the future. Some claim we are actually in the millennial kingdom right now. We just don't realize it. And that's a head-scratcher for me. Because if we are in it right now, then that means Satan is bound in the abyss. And as far as I can tell, that's not our reality. As I see it, Satan is very active. And he still prowls around like a roaring lion to devour people and to create havoc in this world. As I have said a few times in this study, sometimes the best and the most accurate interpretation of the Bible is the simplest interpretation. And I think that is the best way to understand the millennial kingdom in a straightforward, literal way. The thousand-year period represents real time. A thousand years. In fact, it is mentioned six times in this chapter. If it was just mentioned once, then you could argue that it is symbolic. But 1,000 years is specifically mentioned six times. Also, it comes after the second coming of Jesus. Because that is the way it is presented to us in the Bible. We are not in the millennial kingdom now. But in the future, as an answer to our prayer, thy kingdom come. Jesus will personally and physically return to establish his promised literal kingdom on the earth. That is the consistent picture throughout the Bible. The Messiah will establish his physical kingdom on the earth. In fact, this is one of the reasons why many who believed that Jesus was the Messiah were confused. Because Jesus told them he had to die. When they expected the Messiah to physically reign right then and there. It confused them. So the first thing we see that occurs in the millennial kingdom is Satan is taken out of the picture. So he can no longer prowl and deceive the nations. And although we are not told here 
Okay, we're not told here. I am going to assume that this also includes the demons as well. Okay. That's an assumption on my part. There will be no demonic influence. And that will be a breath of fresh air. But there's also a flip side to consider. A flip side. His removal is also the removal of any excuse for a rebellious nature. Meaning, and we'll talk about this more, meaning that during the millennial kingdom, mortal people, okay, mortal people, will still have free will. And no one will be able to say then, the devil made me do it. That excuse will be gone. Then John informs us that after the thousand years is complete, Satan will be released for a short time. And we will get to that later. But during the millennial kingdom, things are made right. Things are set straight. Jesus is the earthly king, but he does not reign alone. He does not reign alone as John tells us in verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is a long verse. John says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When Jesus swooped down from heaven on his white horse, with him were the redeemed of all ages. His called ones. His chosen. His faithful followers. That would include the dead in Christ who were raised to life. The raptured church. And it includes the Old Testament saints who come back to life in their resurrected bodies at some point. We return to the earth with Jesus and reign with Him as pictured by the reference of thrones. Jesus won't reign alone, for that's what He promised His followers many times. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, Jesus said, 
He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with an iron rod as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Then later, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus tells us, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I have overcame, And sat down with my father on his throne. So the called ones, the chosen, the faithful will reign with Jesus in glorified bodies during the millennial kingdom. And we are also told there is one other last group who will reign with the Lord as well. And it's those who became faithful followers of Jesus Christ during the tribulation period and were killed by the Antichrist as a consequence. Their souls have been in heaven under the altar of God. But now, John sees their bodies resurrected as well. Those seated on the thrones will be the Lord's agents who carry out His will and His wishes in His government. A government that is good and righteously ruled. And just so you know, our roles and our responsibilities in His government, pay attention, are given to us according to our faithful service in this life. That's the idea we get from the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25. Jesus will reward us with various roles and responsibilities according to our faithfulness to Him in the here and now. How we serve the Lord in this life will have a bearing in how we serve Him in the next something to think about. So you've got resurrected Old Testament saints, resurrected New Testament saints, and now you've got resurrected tribulation saints. All reigning with the Lord. But here's the million dollar question. With all those thrones... Who is left to be ruled? Who's left? Those being ruled are the believers who actually survived the tribulation period in their mortal bodies without being killed. It will include both Jewish and Gentile survivors 
who had not received the mark of the beast, but managed to avoid execution at the hand of the Antichrist and his wicked followers. These mortal survivors, both Jews and Gentiles alike, will be ushered into the Lord's kingdom. And they will be responsible for repopulating the earth. They will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so on and so on during this thousand-year period. Okay. Let's look at the next two verses, beginning with verse 5. Buckle in. (laughs) Buckle in. We are told, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there are a couple of things going on in this passage. But right off the bat, we are told that the rest of the dead, referring to the spiritually dead, okay, the spiritually dead, the unbelievers, the lost, who have died throughout history, they will not be resurrected yet. Instead, they will continue to wait in Hades. They will wait in Hades until the thousand years is completed. Okay? You with me so far? Okay. Then John introduces us to what is referred to as the first resurrection. And one of these two words... One of these two words has created a lot of confusion and even fierce theological debate. And the difficult word is not the word resurrection. Yeah, it's the word first. Oddly enough, it's the word first. Now, I assure you, I do not want to add to the confusion or the debate. 
but I need to explain this to you the best I can. So let's just kind of carefully work through this together. At least you'll be able to see how I process stuff as we work through this, okay? When we hear the word first, I think initially, initially, we tend to understand the word as referring to something that comes ahead of all others. Meaning that what comes first is number one. You with me? And that makes sense. But if we see the first resurrection mentioned by John in that context as being number one, then we got a problem. Because both historically and chronologically, the number one resurrection was Jesus. Jesus was the first raised from the dead and whose body was transformed and glorified never to die again. Jesus gets the distinction of being number one. And as a side note, if you recall, after Jesus was resurrected, Matthew tells us that many saints were raised to life and came out of their tombs. So clearly, the Lord's resurrection occurred first, along with some saints who were right on his heels. Therefore, John's use of the word first cannot be simply seen as number one. It has to be interpreted differently, and it is. In the Greek, that word first is protos. Protos. And it has a couple of meanings. It means before, before, as in This comes before that. And it also means better or best. As in, this is better than that. So the word first does not necessarily mean number one. It can simply refer to a place in sequence. Or it can refer to importance or priority of something. 
And in context, I think both of these meanings apply. And let me explain. <clears throat> I get my breath. There are two bodily resurrections. A resurrection of the, of the righteous for life. And there is a second, a final resurrection, which is the resurrection of the spiritually dead for judgment and condemnation. There are two resurrections. Separated, separated by the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And that is the key to understanding this first resurrection that John mentions here. It is called the first resurrection, not because it is number one, but because it comes before and is better than the final resurrection. Okay, does that make sense? Not because it's number one, it simply comes before and it is better than the final resurrection. These resurrections are separated by a thousand year period. <clears throat> so, who is being resurrected? And when, when does this first resurrection occur? The first resurrection is the resurrection of all the chosen, the called, and the faithful throughout history. It will include believers who died in Christ. You could add the raptured church. It will include Old Testament saints who are resurrected at some point. And last but not least, it will also include the martyred tribulation saints. And as for when it occurs, let me say this. <clears throat> I don't see the first resurrection as a single event. I do not see it as a single event, but rather, rather, I see it in stages. Okay? And if it helps, picture the stages of a harvest in Old Testament times. In those days, when harvesting a grain field, okay, when harvesting a grain field, there would be a gathering of the first fruits, which were taken to the temple and offered. 
presented to God as a, as a sacrifice, as an offering. Then there was the main reaping of the field. And afterwards, as a service to the poor and the needy, they were invited to glean the field of whatever remained. If you remember, that's how Ruth met Boaz. Using the stages of a harvest as a reference, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, he told the Corinthians that when it comes to the resurrection, Jesus was the first fruit. He was the first fruit offered to God as a sacrifice on our behalf. It started with Him. Then comes the main reaping when Jesus returns for His church, for His bride. Paul described it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. He said, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's going to be a lot of dead. If you consider going back to first century. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. In the main reaping, the dead in Christ rise first in their transformed bodies, and afterwards, believers who are alive will be raptured and their bodies will be changed, glorified. And last but not least, there is the gleaning. The resurrection of the tribulation martyrs before the millennial kingdom. So the first resurrection. The better resurrection. Which is for all believers. Comes at various stages in history but all coming before the final resurrection of the spiritually dead. I know that was a lot to take in. And you don't have to agree with a single thing I just said. That's okay. Okay, that's absolutely okay. But regardless of your view, whatever that view may be, here is the bottom line in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. 
Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. We will be with the Lord, blessed never to die, and we will reign with Him. So that begs the question, what will life be like? What will life be like during the Millennial Kingdom? Well, in a nutshell, we get a taste of life as if Adam had never sinned. And there are several passages that speak about this throughout the Bible. But for the sake of time, I'm going to keep us in Isaiah. Okay? So let's begin with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that He may teach us about His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and will mediate for many peoples. And they will, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. We're told that people from all over the world will come to Jerusalem to be taught by the Lord Himself. Jerusalem will be the capital of His kingdom and people will regularly journey there to meet and worship the King in person. Isaiah tells us that we will continue to be divided into nations. But there will be no fear of war under the rule of Jesus. Yes, Yes, people and nations will still have their issues because free wills are involved. Free wills are still involved, but we are told that Jesus will mediate. He will mediate and settle their matters. 
Then a few chapters later, we come to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9. Where we read, I like this, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The effects of the fall have made this world a dangerous place. Is it not? A dangerous place. But the Lord's kingdom will be one of complete peace and harmony. In fact, we learn that even the animals will change. Even the animals will change. All animals become herbivores. Herbivores. Just as it was at creation before the fall. Even little children can play with cobras without fear of harm. That's a little unnerving, I will admit. But that's what we are told. Because of the earth's perfect conditions, people in their mortal bodies will work, they will have families, and they will live long lives just like those we read about way back in Genesis. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 19 through 24. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who only lives a few days or an old person who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred. And the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. In other words, no squatters. They will not plant and eat another. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. 
They will not labor in vain or give birth to children for disaster. For they are the descendants of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will listen. So in this passage, we learn a few interesting things, don't we? We're told that all of the injustices of life will disappear. People will actually enjoy the work of their hands. The lands will flourish. The property of another will be respected. And the fear of sudden disaster and misfortune will be gone. All mortal people will be expected to live to a ripe old age. Long life will be a given. It's a given. And for those who surprisingly don't live long, that can only be explained as being a consequence of sin. There are other passages we could look at, but hopefully, I hope you get the idea. Jesus will be the earthly king in Jerusalem. Those in his kingdom will experience what life is like under his righteous reign. And during his reign, people will have time to gain a true knowledge of God without any deception or any obstacles by the enemy. But it doesn't remain that way after the thousand years is completed. Let's get back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, and we're going to pick back up with verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Some people 
may find this passage shocking. Shocking. But here we are told, even in ideal conditions, even in ideal conditions, even in the presence of the Lord, even under His righteous rule, there will be many who steal who still oppose him when given the opportunity. It's hard to fathom. But here it is. And let me explain. Everybody who enters into the millennial kingdom, everybody is righteous. But during this thousand year period, it's a long time, isn't it? During this thousand year period, those who are mortal will repopulate the earth with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so on and so on. In a thousand year period, there will be numerous generations of people with free will. With free will. And not all of them will choose to follow the Lord like those before. Just like today, just like today, people will still make individual decisions to either follow or reject Jesus. And when Satan is released for a short time, he will deceive and stir up a rebellion by those who do not follow the Lord. In a sense, this rebellion will sum up all that God has said about the heart of man. For even though the environment will be perfect, a perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. Today, there are those who believe that man is basically good. There are many who believe that man is really innocent and are simply the products of our environment. But this will reveal the true nature of man. Once and for all. And if given the opportunity, 
people will still make the wrong choice. Even, even in a perfect environment. We are told this rebellion will will prompt a battle. But it's not much of a battle. I don't know why we want to call it that. For fire will come down from the heaven and quickly destroy the rebellion. It's over. And then Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and the false prophet in torment forever and ever. Then comes the final judgment of the spiritually dead. The lost. The unbelievers. And we will look at that next week. We have covered a lot of ground this morning. And I apologize if I've confused anybody or given you more than you can can saturate. But for me, there are two things that really, really stick out for me. For believers, how we live our lives in the here and now will have a bearing on our future in the Lord's kingdom. I don't know about you, I just want to hear from the Lord, Robert, well done, good, and faithful servant. I don't care about the crowns. I might look good in a crown, but I don't care about the crown, quite frankly. I just want to hear those words. My son, well done, good and faithful servant. That would be reward enough. Wow. To hear that. Well done. Then for those who do not know Jesus, I'll be blunt. If you die in your sins, if you reject the Lord's love and grace and forgiveness. You miss it all. You miss it all while you wait in Hades for the final resurrection of the spiritually dead. You miss it all. This isn't a game, is it? This is life and death. There are life and death consequences for what we do here. 
And I want to encourage you this morning to choose a life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And it truly was a breath of fresh air. And I thank you for it, Lord. Father, you know I've read ahead. I've read ahead. And what and what we just covered this morning is just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip. Father, I pray this morning that you would move amongst us. Your spirit would move amongst us. And that we would come to that place where we just want to follow you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Oh, Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your, thank you for your forgiveness. And Father, in light of what you have done for us through your Son, I pray, Lord, that we would come to that place where Jesus would be our everything. That He would increase in our lives and that we would decrease. We would just get out of the way. Help us to get out of the way. Help us to follow You, Lord. Father, may You be honored and glorified in what we say, what we think, and what we do. May you be lifted up. May you be pointed out. And I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. If you could see into the future... that change anything? You could peek into the future. Would that change anything? I would have invested in Microsoft about 40 years ago. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's a serious question, though. Because that's what we just did. Didn't we? We just took a sneak peek into the future. It was written down for us. These things must happen. That's what we just took a sneak peek. Does that change anything for you? does for me.
there are things in my life that are not as important as I thought maybe they were. I'm investing time into things which, quite frankly, is just wasted time. Wasted time. We just peeked into the future. That have that should have some bearing on what we do from this point on. I look forward to the to the millennial kingdom. I'm excited about it. And for those who do not know Christ, I'd be terrified. Horrified. As a believer in Christ, I mean, I want to live my life. I want to please Him. I, want to, I just want to follow Him. Lord, I just, I just want to follow You. Help me to stay connected to You. Help me to abide in You. Help me to follow You. We'll do it tomorrow, tomorrow. But today... I just want to follow you, Lord, today. That also lights a fire in me to start sharing what I know with people who do not know what I know. Next week, we're going to talk about the judgment of the lost. It's terrible, terrifying. That should motivate us. To share what we know. To share what we know. That's it. So knowing what we know now, that should change. It should change how we live our lives. It should change our trajectory. It should change our course. And if you're off course, get back on course. That's what this is about. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope I did not confuse you. And if you want to debate certain things, uh, you can talk to Scott back there. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. <laughs> yeah, just deferring that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, and actually, I, I enjoy, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. So yeah, if you want to talk about it, you want to, even want to debate it, love, love to spend some time with you to talk about that. I know it can be confusing, absolutely. If you're looking for a church home, love to have you. If you're if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and in your heart of hearts you know, you know what? I'm just playing church. That's all I'm doing. I'm just playing church. I really I'm not really in a relationship with him. I would like to introduce you to him. He loves you. You want to be a part of the first resurrection. Not the second. I'm just telling you. If there's anything else you want to, you need some, need some prayer. I would love to pray with you. However, the Lord leads you this morning. I just ask that you would just follow Him and just be obedient. That's what I ask. Let me, uh, let me uh, again. Yeah, thank you so much for being. Let me, let me close us in prayer. I want to pray for our offering. Just a reminder: our offering baskets are back there in the door, and then also for fellowship. I do smell food, and uh, so that's kind of driving me. Anyway, uh, let me pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for our time together. Uh, Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified uh, in in this in our 
presented the word, but also in our minds and our hearts, Father. Uh, Lord, I just I just pray that what was uh, said here would would uh, would translate outside these walls. Uh, that's my that's my desire, Lord, that it would change our lives. So, Father, I thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Father, for our, as our, we take up our offering and, uh, and our tithes, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to be cheerful and generous givers. Father, bless the giver, uh, bless the gift, and help us, Lord God, as a body to uh, faithfully and to uh, accurately uh, use uh, your, your money. Again, it is your money, Lord God. And then, Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Lord, I pray that it would be sweet, uh, it would be encouraging and uplifting. Father, bless the food. Uh, bless those who, who bought food, who prepared food, and then bless it, Father, to our bodies. May you be honored and glorified. I thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.